themselves are horribly wicked people, and God is explaining to the prophet that he does have a plan to bring about justice. God is not winking at these horrible atrocities, and we're learning what Babylon was guilty of, learning some important lessons about what God considers to be horribly wicked, and it can speak to even our society today. I think today's passage, especially here in South Africa, we're going to find some traction. We're going to find some commonality with number 12. Uh, it says here, Woe to him that buildeth the town. Sean, could you lower me just a little bit? I'm hearing myself quite a bit there. Woe to him that buildeth a town with blood and establisheth a city by iniquity. Bit last week that the Babylonians were uh, raiding other countries, stealing their goods, and then bringing those stones and goods and mortar, all of that, back to Babylon, building their kingdom with stolen stuff. So they, when he says, woe to him that buildeth a town with blood, we're talking literally they killed people, shed blood to have the resources to build their kingdom. And then it says, establisheth a city by iniquity. So Babylon, much like many governments in the world, it was established not on justice and righteousness and truth. It was established, established on corruption. It was based on <clears throat> whoever had the most money, he gets to be right. The judgment falls in his favor. Whoever gets to the guy first with the money under the table. And I don't think as far as a country is concerned, there's anything that undermines the overall infrastructure, the overall uh, feeling of society than, than corruption. It completely tears it down because once corruption begins to sneak in, who can you trust? How do you know you're going to get a fair shake in court? When you go to the Department of Motor Vehicles, when you, go to go, when you go to Home Affairs, how do you know that the money you're paying is actually the right fee? And because maybe that guy's going to pocket it. Maybe the paper I've been given, the stamp that's on it, maybe that's not legit. It makes you doubt every single thing you do in that country. Now, why would you want to invest money in that kind of country? The people in the country and the people outside of the country begin to doubt whether or not this country is going to treat that money properly. Years ago when I lived in Malawi, this was a, corruption's all over the world, right? It's not just one country that's good at this. But it was a big problem, there still is. And the American government, the British government, many governments were sending aid to Malawi, billions of dollars every year. So the then president, Bakidi Maluzi, he said, give us your money and get out of our country. You have no right to oversee the money that you give us. Because these other countries were saying, we'll give you the billions, but we want to put people on the ground to make sure that the money goes where it's supposed to go. We're afraid that government is, it's only trickling down maybe one or two steps and then the money's not going where it needs to. That seems fair. We're going to give you billions of dollars. We want to put five or six people there to make sure that it works. And Maluzi said, you have no right to interfere in our business. Well then, and, but he said, how dare you not give us the money though? You hard-hearted mean people, give us the money and leave. Those were literally his words. Now that obviously, right, he's covering something up. I mean, that's just all too obvious. I want to show you guys a, a few verses that deal with corruption. And I, I thought about giving you some statistics for like the corruption problem in South Africa. I think you're all well aware of that problem though, right? You don't need any numbers or statistics to prove that there is a problem. You know that it is 
greater here in South Africa than in a lot of countries in the world. It has penetrated almost every level of government, almost every town to some extent is bothered by it. So I don't need to explain to you what it is or how bad it is in South Africa. I want to show you some verses now just to give you an idea about how God views this and, and how harshly uh, he deals with this in due time. Look at Psalm 73 to begin with. Let's get Psalm 73. And here's a, a man named Asaph who writes this psalm. He's one of David's choir masters. And he recognizes the horrible condition of the society of his day. In verse 5, it says, They are not in trouble as other men, speaking about the wicked, neither are they plagued like other men. So they do all these horrible things, they don't get in trouble. Therefore pride compasseth them about as a chain, violence covereth, covereth them as a garment. Their eyes stand out with fatness, they have more than heart could wish. This sounds like we're describing a politician in 2021, right? I mean, it sounds word for word. Verse 8, they are corrupt and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. So even though they're doing horrible things, they, they demand respect. In verse 9, they set their mouth against the heavens, their tongue walketh through the earth, and and then he goes on to explain how grossly this discourages the people. This is Asaph's day. Now, David was the king. So it's not as if there was a horrible government. There were just corrupt people here and there in that society. Now, imagine if the whole government, top down, is nothing but corrupt individuals. Asaph was discouraged to the point of even quitting on God. That's what this chapter is about. And then he realizes, no, no, in due time, God is going to punish them. You can see down in verse number uh, 16. When I thought to know this, it was too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then understood I their end. Surely thou didst set them in slippery places. Thou castest them down into destruction. How are they brought into desolation? As in a moment, they are utterly consumed with terrors. So even though for a while, for years even, they're riding high, in due time God cuts them down and their fall is great. Uh, turn with me now to Amos, the prophet Amos, not too far from Habakkuk, where we were earlier. Let's get Amos chapter 5 and verse number 12. Matter of fact, we're going to read a couple of verses with that. Let's, let's start at verse number 10. Amos was a fascinating prophet, fascinating. He was just a backwoods country preacher. He tells you that at the end of his book. He says, I wasn't a prophet. I was a farmer. I was a sheep herder. That's all I was. God called me to preach. I didn't have big education, nothing like that. And you can, you can see that in how he wrote and how he preached. It was very straightforward. He used a lot of practical illustrations. Let's get verse number 10. Speaking about the wicked in his day, they hate him that rebuketh in the gate. So they hate street preachers. They abhor him that speaketh uprightly. Verse 11, For as much therefore as your treading is upon the poor, and ye take from him burdens of wheat, ye have built houses of hewn stone, but ye shall not dwell in them. Much like we saw in Habakkuk, they're building these great empires and kingdoms, but you're not going to get to enjoy it. Now in this particular case, treading upon the poor, this is overtaxation. That's how that happens. 
among other things, mind you, but that's one of the big ways that they get that done. He says, but ye shall not dwell in them. Ye have planted pleasant vineyards, but ye shall not drink wine of them. So they've built this beautiful land and kingdom for themselves, but the enemy's going to come and destroy them and kick them out of that land. Verse 12, for I know your manifold transgressions and your mighty sins. Wow. Sins are bad, but he just said mighty sins. How strong are those sins? They afflict the just. So the guy's done nothing wrong, beat him up. They take a bribe and they turn aside the poor in the gate from their right. So that poor man has some expectations. Even in the law, in the book of Deuteronomy, it says that the poor would be able to come and expect to find this and that in people's fields and from the Israeli government, and now they're, they're getting cheated out of that. So the poor get oppressed. All right, now let's get the book of Micah. Come to the right just a little bit. Micah chapter 7. I, just for the sake of time, I will leave it up to you to later on as you read through Amos, as you read through the book of Micah, just to take a look at these contexts and see how this pains the heart of God when people go down this path. Micah 7, let's get verse 1. Woe is me, for I am as when they have gathered the summer fruits, as the grape gleanings of the vintage. There is no cluster to eat. My soul desired the first ripe fruit. So now, in the days of Micah, the nation is in steep decline. They're already suffering famine and things like that. Verse 2, the good man is perished out of the earth. There is none upright among men. They all lie in wait for blood. They hunt every man his brother with a net. That's what happens when corruption takes over a country. It then becomes every man for himself because you cannot trust anyone. You, you, you have to have it in the back of your mind that somebody is spying on you or if somebody's being kind to you, they're doing that so that you owe them a favor. It, make, it causes you to lose trust in everything. So much so that one of the prophets suggested, do not even talk to your wife. Don't tell her any secrets. She may be the spy. That's how bad it gets. Now see, people think, well, it's no big deal. It's just one little payment under the table. You are undermining the country one little payment at a time when you do that. Verse 3, that they may do evil with both hands earnestly. The prince asketh and the judge asketh for a reward. And the great man, that is the, the rich, important guy, the famous guy, he uttereth his mischievous desire. So they wrap it up. <laughs> I like what Jack Wood said about this. He was preaching from this one day. Jack Wood, that old cowboy preacher from Texas, he said, so brethren, they just wrap it up. They wrap it up. They wrap it up like a burrito. <laughs> like a burrito. I've, I'll never read this without thinking of a burrito. Do you guys know what a burrito is? Okay, because maybe you don't find that as amusing as I do. But when they wrap it up like a burrito, what they're doing, it's a cover-up. It's a cover-up. These things have been going on for centuries, for millennia now. And every time a country gets to that point, it's not long before God steps in and says, okay, there's absolutely no coming back from this. There, there's no revival that will fix it. I don't care how many preachers I send, you guys will just kill them. Even if I send my son, you'll kill him. So let me show you God's plan to fix corruption. Come to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. 
And let's get verse 11. Genesis 6 and 11. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. Why would those two things go together? Well, nobody is, is receiving their due wages, right? You work, you don't get paid because your boss is corrupt. So then the government comes in and takes more tax than they should. So now you're suffering unjustly. And now in order to survive, you have to get brutal. You have to do what's necessary to protect yourself. Somebody's going to steal from you. You got to steal from that. That's what had happened. The world had devolved into this chaotic moral mess. Verse 13, God said unto Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me. For the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Forgive me, I skipped over verse 12, but it's telling us the same thought. God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. It was a mess. You know what God did? He hits the reset button. He says, there's no coming back from this. I found me a just man, Noah. He's a righteous man. And I'll have grace on him, and I'll help him through this, and I'll start with him. It didn't take long before the Tower of Babel kicks in after the flood and things go right back downhill again. Complete corruption. Look at the state of this. Verse 5, God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now let me ask you this. How far off do you think we are worldwide from this description? We're not far we're not far. I, I don't mean to bore you with a news report, but if you've kept up at all with what's happening in Afghanistan, pull an army out, leave them to fare for themselves. Those pictures are horrifying. When you see a man holding on to the wheel of a jet while the jet is in the clouds, finding a man crushed in the wheelbase of a jet, that's how desperate they are. We're not far from this situation of Genesis 6. Now, God promised at the end of that whole situation in Genesis, I'll never again flood the earth with water. But one day, God is going to flood the earth again, but with fire. That's in 2 Peter chapter 3. God will one day bring global judgment, and that is when he sends his son back. Take your Bible, come to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. Say, Pastor, how is it that God can let this corrupt society just go on and on and on? Doesn't God care? Isn't he going to do something about it? Yes. Yes, he will in due time. Don't don't worry. He will step in. Matthew 24. Let's uh, take a look real quick at verse number 37. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. And then he describes it. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered into the ark and knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. What's his point? Society is just going to go right on. Even though there are warnings, God's preachers are stepping up saying, the Lord's coming back. He's going to punish this injustice. And they just ignore it and keep right on with their lives. Just push right through it and 
wink at all the corruption. It is our duty to say something. The Bible tells us in 2 Peter chapter 2, Noah was a preacher of righteousness. He told the people, what you're doing is wrong. You need to repent. There is judgment coming. And there is an ark available. We, we have extra space. If, if you, and by the way, if you've ever seen a life-size model of the ark, there was lots of extra space. Regardless of what the uh, skeptics might say about how all the an animals fit, there were plenty of space. They could have brought a couple extra dinosaurs. <laughs> there was lots of space in that ark. Noah is inviting people to repent and trying to get them right. And listen, that's our job. Whether or not they repent, that's between that sinner and God. But it's our job to say something about it while it's happening and certainly not be involved in the problem, right? Not keeping that corrupt chain going. All right, let's come back to the book of Habakkuk now. So verse 12, Woe to him that buildeth a town with blood, and establisheth a city by iniquity. Verse 13, Behold, it is not of the Lord... I'm sorry, this is a question. Let me ask it correctly. Behold, is it not of the Lord of hosts that the people shall labor in the very fire, and the people shall weary themselves for very vanity? In other words, all of the work they're doing is going to be absolutely useless. It's going to come to nothing. Vanity vanity. They're going to labor in the very fire. Now, what does that mean? Well, hold your place here. Get Jeremiah chapter 51. I'm going to give you another verse about Babylon, which did come to pass. Jeremiah chapter 51 and verse 58. <clears throat> so, as Babylon is being destroyed by the Persians and the Medes, they are burning down that city. And the people of Babylon are trying to salvage it. They're looking at it going, this is our, our home. This is our pride and joy. This is what we think makes us stand out. All the world bows down to us. Everybody thinks we're something great and shows us respect because we are Babylonians. So now their city's crumbling. And along with that, their pride crumbling. So now they're as the city is burning... They're in that fire, burning, grabbing burning wood, and the bricks are hot, and they're grabbing this stuff, trying to salvage something. Uh, chapter 51, verse 58, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, The broad walls of Babylon shall be utterly broken, and her high gates shall be burned with fire, and the people shall labor in vain, and the folk in the fire, and they shall be weary. They'll work day and night past exhaustion, trying to salvage something that God said is unsalvageable. God said, that's not worth your time. That's not worth your effort. That is going to burn. Now stop wasting time with that. Do you see the practical lesson that we might be able to learn from that? There are certain things that we busy ourselves with, and one day it's just going to burn anyway. It's just going to burn. Hold, your, well, hold Habakkuk, and if you would, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Those Babylonians worked so hard, and by any means necessary, they tried to make a name for themselves. They tried to establish it so that they would be the chief nation, 
And people would respect them and honor them for generations to come. And how many individuals do we know even now that have that same desire in mind? They want their life to mean something. And that's not a bad desire, by the way. That, that's a fine desire. But what actually means something? What kind of legacy would you like to leave behind? Your grandkids, what, what stories do you want them to tell about you? Jesus said, lay not up treasure on earth, but lay it up in heaven. Why? Because the stuff on earth, the Antichrist is going to get it. <laughs> and if the Antichrist doesn't get it, your doctor is going to get it. And if your doctor doesn't get it, your lawyer is going to get it. And if your lawyer doesn't get it, your ex-wife is going to get it. <laughs> Someone else is going to get it, but you're not going to get it. You're not, you're not going to keep it. 1 Corinthians 3, let's, let's talk about this fire here for a moment. Now, the fire that the Babylonians were dealing with, right? They thought, we'll, we will continue, our name will forever be great. <clears throat> Just the opposite happened. 1 Corinthians 3, 11, For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He is the solid rock, amen? That's what we sing. Now, if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, you do have a choice, right? You can build something that will last. You can build something temporary that will burn, right? The first three things won't burn in a fire. The last three, you start fires with them. Verse 13, every man's work shall be made manifest for the day shall declare it. That day in the New Testament is called the day of Jesus Christ. And it is the day that Christians get judged. Up in heaven, you stand before the Lord. And the Lord asks, what did you build on the foundation? What did you do for me from the time that you got saved? Your, your former life, the life before Christ, your B.C. days, gone. Washed in the blood. Thank God for that. But what you did after the foundation was laid and you were a new creature and he gave you a Bible and he lived inside of you in the form of the Holy Spirit and he gave you a church and he gave you brothers and sisters to provoke, to love and to good works and every advantage to build something that will last eternally. Then the question comes down, let's see what you did for me with all the grace that I gave you and the day shall declare it. Verse 13 because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. Is it good? Is it bad? Did you do it for Christ? Did you do it for the flesh? Verse 14, if any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. Notice, you don't receive eternal life because you did right. Eternal life is a free gift that comes through receiving Christ by faith. You receive rewards because you built something profitable and long-lasting on that foundation. This is a very good time to look at what you're doing with your life and ask yourself, am I one of the folk in the fire? Am I laboring in vain? Am I trying to salvage my version of Babylon that God has already said it's not going to last? Let that old life burn those things that you thought were going to make you great, let them die, and now just focus your attention on Christ. In verse 15, he says, If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. You lose rewards. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. You are saved by that fire. 
how could that be? I thought I was getting saved from the fire. <laughs> right? That was one of the reasons I accepted Christ. I, didn't, I don't like fire. <laughs> don't want to live there forever. But this says, he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. How does the fire help me? Would you like to carry around your wood, hay, and stubble for the rest of eternity? No, that would be shameful. Listen, that wood, hay, and stubble will not steal from me my eternal life. I, I am destined to live with God forever, but I don't want to carry around the shame of those dead works, those useless, vain things that I thought were going to earn me respect and honor in the sight of men, which maybe it does, but it's very temporary. And then I get up to heaven and go, wow, that was a waste of time. The fire burns that stuff off, and now I can get on enjoying God for the rest of eternity. That's how we're, we're saved from shame. We're saved from shame, which this isn't a lesson on, on that, but you can look at 1 John 2, verse 28 later on, and you'll see one of the things that we're trying to avoid is being ashamed before him at his coming. So this fire acts to help. All right, come back to the book of Habakkuk now, chapter 2 and verse number 14. So God has asked the prophet or put forth this question in verse 13 that isn't it the Lord's plan that what they've built and thought would get them glory, God is going to take that thing down, tear it down and destroy it. In verse 14, for the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What an outstanding thought that is. What a wonderful hope. What a day that will be when the earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. The Babylonians thought the earth would be filled with the knowledge of their glory. Right? Nebuchadnezzar sent out letters to every province under his jurisdiction and said, when you hear the music, you have to bow down and worship the image that I've put up. And in so doing, you're also worshiping him. He thought the earth is going to bow down to me. The earth is going to bow down to my great golden idol. God said, no, that's, that's completely wrong. The earth one day will bow the knee to me. The earth is going to be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. They are going to know how great he is. Now, brother, sister, listen to this. We get a head start on that. This will be fulfilled in the millennial kingdom. When Jesus comes back, he sets up his kingdom on this earth, and the whole world will then know the truth about him. They will know what we have already accepted, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and there's no other way to the Father but by him, and that the Lamb of God truly does take away the sin of the world, that he and only he reconciles us to God. He's the answer. He's the resurrection, the life. Everything we know to be true about him, one day the whole earth will be on the same page. And that will be true in the kingdom. But for now, we have this wonderful truth already inside of us. We don't have to wait for his physical presence to not only believe it or even appreciate it, even now. Hold your place here again. Get Hebrews chapter 8, if you would. Hebrews chapter 8. And we'll begin reading in verse number 8. This is where the, the author of Hebrews is quoting from Jeremiah about the new covenant. So Israel messed up the old covenant, the first one. So God comes up with this covenant for him. Verse 8 says, For finding fault with them, 
He saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. That's the one from Exodus. Verse 10, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. This new testament, this new covenant, has not been fully established yet. It has not been completely realized. Say, but Brother Mike, aren't we living in New Testament times? Yes, we are under a New Testament. This is true. But this particular covenant, notice it's between God and the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It's a national thing. It's a group thing. And God says, one day this entire nation, they will know me not just, I'm not going to put my law into their hands. I'm going to put it in their heart. I'm going to be their God. They'll be my people. I will have a personal relationship with them. Now, here's the thing. We get to have that now. The Holy Spirit does live within us. We have the mind of Christ. You remember that verse in 1 Corinthians 2? We have the mind of Christ. So we have, let's say, we have a head start on this glorious day of having the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. That is, the Holy Spirit already lives, lives within telling us just how great He is. We get to grow in that knowledge day by day until one day we see it physically with our eyes. That's the one I've been thinking about, meditating on, praying to, preaching about, talking about. There he is. He's every bit as great and more. The half has not been told. I didn't realize it would be this good. This, I'm so glad I got in when I did. I don't want to wait to learn how to worship and praise God until the millennium. We start now just recognizing how wonderful he is. In verse 11, They shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For all shall know me from the least to the greatest. Do you see why I say not, that this new covenant has not been fully realized yet? We're not there yet. We still need to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. We still need to be asking our neighbors and co-workers and strangers even if we, if we can, do you know the Lord? We need that. But one day we won't. One day from the least to the greatest, when you meet somebody, you will truly be able to say, hello my brother. Hello my sister. We'll be on the same page. Verse 12, for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. This is what we are currently enjoying. My sins are washed away. And they, it's not as if God is going to bring those things back up in the future. Say, hey, what about that, that life before you met me? It's gone. It's gone. Praise God, it's gone. Come back to Habakkuk chapter 2. Let's get verse 14. I'd like to finish on a practical note here. Verse 14 says, The earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Now, do you folks remember there's two little words I told you to watch out for when you read your Bible? Like and as. Here, here's one of them. As the waters cover the sea. So now in order to try to wrap our heads around 
what it's going to be like, this overwhelming knowledge of God's glory. How, how can we think about that, illustrate that? Just look out at the ocean, like the waters cover the sea. That's a tremendous, I, I, I don't know, I, I'm sure most of you have been to the sea at one point in your lives. It's mesmerizing, isn't it? Are you like me when you stand on that beach? You can, if you time it right, you know, if you're in Cape Town in winter, you may not be able to handle the cold so long, but if you time it just right, you stand there on that beach and you can let the tide come in and maybe just wash over your feet lightly. You can stand there for hours staring out into the sea, watch the sun go down. Is there anything more peaceful? My goodness, every now and then a bird just flies by and the water just kind of, just, it, it mesmerizes you, it hypnotizes you almost to, a, to an extent. What you're looking at, that's just, you could look at God's glory for hours. You can get lost in it. You can get mesmerized, hypnotized by it. When you just approach the throne of God, you can just be there for hours and hours and just admire who He is. The character of God runs so deep and is so powerful and so transformative. It can change you. It can bring a peace that passes all understanding. When everything else in life is just going wrong, you step out to that shore that we call the prayer closet and just let the glory of God come and tickle your feet a little bit and just enjoy that presence for a while. I found it interesting one day. I came across, I can't remember where, but in one of the books I was reading, they said we know less about what is in the oceans then we do what is in outer space. We know more about outer space than we do the oceans. Now what's scary about that is I read in another book that the cosmologists and astronomers, they don't know about 96% of what's out there in outer space. They don't know what that is. 96%. And they know even less about the oceans? That tells me something though. If the glory of the Lord is like the waters of the sea, we have yet to begin to dig into the depths of his knowledge, his love, his counsel, his judgment, his grace. We have barely scratched the surface. I know this, if you go out in a boat far enough into any body of water, if you, to use a biblical phrase, launch out into the deep, pretty soon if you get out far enough from the land, all you can see is water. You'll be there in the boat, and the waves, and the wind, the glory of God and the Holy Spirit just takes you out so far. You look left and right. You look north and south, east and west. Everywhere you look, there's just water. Now, for some people that are not used to the water, that can be very disconcerting. For us land dwellers, for us earthly, worldly people, we like to have solid ground beneath our feet, amen? Well, I'm not used to this water, you know? Everything kind of keeps moving. I, I'm not quite sure where I'm at. We don't spend a lot of time at water. We're used to the land under our feet. You get far enough out there and the flesh begins to get a little uncomfortable. And you look this way and that way and all you can see is, you say, praise God, I got a job. You drive that car, praise God, it's still running. It breaks down. Praise God, I still got a car. <laughs> you start to look around up in heaven and the, and it, the firmament declares His handiwork. 
The heavens that talk about the glory of God and day unto day utters speech and night unto night utters knowledge and it's just nonstop. Everywhere you look, you can just see the fingerprint of God all over creation and all inside of our conscience. And pretty soon, you just get overwhelmed by how great of a God we have. We have yet to begin to delve into that, de that deepness, if I can say. One day, one day we'll get to jump in the deep end. When we see Him, then we will know Him as we are known. Until that day, we can just enjoy the ride as we're in that boat going deeper and deeper into His glory, learning more and more about Him. That's the command to grow in our knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Another way to say that, go deeper and deeper and deeper. Let's all stand, if you would, please. Beautiful, beautiful weather outside, fellowship for a bit. Father, thank you this morning. We know that the world around us is filled with corruption and violence and sin and iniquity. God, globally, there's no hope. The world is not going to self-correct. We want to do what we can to help people into the ark, but Lord, 